Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Earthside Echo, your source for all the latest dispatches from Earthside. In this episode, we rejoin Fenton Brahms among the armies of the King's Empire. In Afghanistan, Brahms was found in the desert, mutilated and missing an eye. During his recovery, he befriended a young captain named Tybalt, who introduced him to the teachings of the cult of the Burning Man. We rejoin Brahms two years later in a tent in Tibet. I hope you enjoy the conclusion of Lantern Burning. The human mind is a stubborn thing. Like a fortress, it remains closed to outsiders, with its gates barred and crenellations guarded, in order to shut out the unfamiliar. Enlightenment is a willingness to invite the unknown and to embrace that which defies reality. A lack of understanding does not justify fear. Of everything he taught me on that night when he first appeared in my dreams, this lesson was the most valuable. If I did not have the courage to accept that he was already within us all, waiting to expose himself at the crossing, I never would have discovered the true path to enlightenment. So to all of you I say, unbar your gates, dismiss your watchmen. A fortress imprisons you within as much as it keeps the enemy without. In the shadow of the monastery, There was little virgin snow left by the time the battle finished, only dirt and blood. The redoubts and snipers' nests had done little to protect the Tibetans from the Maxim guns and volley fire of the king's empire. Their horses had been swift, and the war mastiffs fierce, but even they could not evade speeding bullets. The clearing smoke revealed a pass littered with corpses and burning trees. Those whose families had guarded this place for centuries would find themselves buried in the same earth, just as their ancestors. There were only three men in the tent for the parley. Brahms met the Tibetan chief Dorje's steely glare, with a cavalier nonchalance that could only be described as infuriatingly inscrutable, almost smug. Brahms's translator remained equally silent. Much had changed in two years. Gone was the timid, wounded soldier, who suffered unspeakable torture at the hands of the enemy. Brahms had grown so much since then, regaining his strength through service in Afghanistan. After Tybalt's suicide, Brahms had risen through the ranks to replace him, thanks to the recommendations of one Dr. Willem Bryant. Those who had once questioned Brahms's loyalty now called him a war hero. His tactics, which often involved putting his men at risk for the greater good, were lauded rather than criticised. How could anyone accuse a man who had nearly lost his life of failing to account for risk? With the fighting in Afghanistan shifting further east, the men of the 7th found themselves relocated to the steppes of Tibet with Brahms as their leader. Commander Fenton Brahms stroked the copy of the Contiones that was secretly tucked away in his coat pocket, feeling the cooling touch of the soft leather against the scabs on his palms. They still hadn't healed. Let us respect our dead, but not mourn them, for at the crossing, the end shall come for us all. Ephraim Wade had been correct all along. A purifying wave was coming, 
a life without fear of consequence, to maximise one's impact before the end came, was the only way to truly live. What a wretch he had been. The burning man saved him from the clutches of the enemy, from death itself, so that he could become a shining exemplar for everyone else. He would lead not only through the embrace of his word, but also in deed. High Command sent the seventh to chase the Tsar's men from desert to tundra. Brahms had no control over his assignment. All he could do was execute it with ruthless satisfaction, whatever the cost. You are his lantern, and he is your light. Let him guide you as you pursue your experience to the fullest. Nothing shall stand in your way, for all shall be cleansed by righteous flames when we are but blind insects crawling in his hands. The howl of the Tibetan wind broke Brahms from his reverie. Silent hostility was a good way to start off the negotiation. Apathy was, ultimately, a source of confusion for one's negotiating rivals. Brahms brushed the shaggy white hair out of his remaining eye and motioned his translator to step forward. He was a boy, not a day older than seventeen. Dressed in the king's colours with a gilded sword strapped to his side, he looked just as regal as the other officers although his youth exuded a softness that belied the palpable tension of the parley. The translator kept his mouth shut. Brahms had instructed him beforehand that it was never wise to speak first at a meeting. Calling him forward was simply a way of intimating that he was ready to entertain the notion of listening. As anticipated, the Tibetan commander broke the silence. Barely leaving room for the boy to translate his words, Dorje continued to stare deep into Brahms's blank countenance, as if trying to read his enemy's thoughts as he spoke. Three thousand of my men died today, after you fired on them with... with... It didn't take a translator to convey that there was no word in Tibetan for anything that could capture the level of destruction the artillery guns had wrought. A sense of ruthless satisfaction gushed through Brahms's stomach. You do not belong here. This is not your home. What right have you to march here? What mandate? You have nothing but spite and greed. What sort of honourless men are you commanding? Brahms fought back a smile. The man's pain and frustration, the feeling of being cornered without escape, was delicious. He had been there once himself, and had crawled his way out through with strength, courage and conviction. Could Dorje do the same? And what sort of men turn their backs on their enemy instead of standing firm? Brahms returned glibly, breaking Dorje's gaze and staring up at the ceiling. He rather admired the standard hanging from the centre pole, a rich crimson, far better than the lurid teal and dusty ochre of Dorje's woollen tuba. What ugly clothing, and horribly impractical too. Dorje's expression hardened, Good men, with families, ancestors, wives and children. We were at peace before you arrived. You should never have come to us. Neither should have the Tsar, but you don't object to his presence. Brahms raised his eyebrows. You negotiated with his men. Why reject us? They are welcomed only because we made it so. Dorje's stare hardened. Brahms scoffed. Ah! Well, you seem to have identified the problem. You could have abandoned them to avoid all of this fighting. 
He waved his hand dismissively. So much death was unnecessary. What had they offered you that we cannot provide? What was worth such a price? That monastery, perhaps? The Tibetan remained silent, but an odd chill fell upon the tent. Several of the candles flickered, and Brahms's translator bristled. The boy shifted his hand an inch, almost imperceptibly, towards the sword at his belt. Brahms himself remained unmoved, but he stared into Dorje's beady black eyes with curiosity. Something like green fire seemed to dance behind the Tibetan's irises. Then the moment passed as quickly as it came. It took a second for the translator to recover, unsure if he had felt that haunting chill, or had merely imagined it. The boy had to talk quickly to match Dorje's next words. There are men even more terrifying than you. Men who transcend the laws of nature. We do not care about your western wars or petty rivalries. Only for the survival of our people. At any cost and with any new skill, even one banned by your laws. The Tsar is far more open-minded than your king. He was willing to teach us what you would not. Brahm stood up and began to pace. A long silence followed. He had felt the chill. It meant only one thing. Dorje and his people were too far gone, and the time for negotiation had passed. Fear not, for all shall be clean to forge a world that is bright and beautiful. It seems that we cannot progress any further. The Tsar offered you a promise we are not prepared to match. You leave us with no other choice. He feigned a sigh. You must surrender, and allow our army to confront his forces directly. We will take the monastery as our base of operations. You do not understand the arts with which you meddle. You will thank us in the end, I think. Dorje's eyes widened. It is you who fails to understand. Proceed as you must, but you cannot enter that place. It is forbidden. What lies within the monastery that's worth dying over, I wonder? Dorje slammed his fist on the table. You would not understand. I cannot allow your arrogance to be the death of both of our peoples. Brahms could sense the urgency, even without the translator. Dorje wasn't negotiating any more. He was pleading. You have already consigned your people to death. You just don't know it. Perhaps there is still time. There will be no negotiation, only your complete, unconditional surrender and the severing of your relations with the Tsar. We will leave your people in peace. Dorje didn't budge, which made Brahms's next decision easier. They would all understand the cost in time. True leadership was to pursue victory at any cost, and most were too narrow-minded to appreciate that vision. When the crossing came, none of it would matter. Your cohorts are outside, ready to receive you, are they not? Brahms nodded towards the tent flap, frowning. The Tibetan stared at Brahms and the translator suspiciously, before responding. They are ready to make a move, should you lay a finger on me. We expected no less from you. Brahms paused, thinking through his plan one more time. There must be some higher power keeping you for something. Tybalt's words echoed inside him like an angelic chorus, 
the end would justify the means, and if it didn't, it wouldn't matter at the crossing. There was no going back now. We expect the same of you, Commander. Why? I think you've betrayed us already, no? What do you mean? Dorje demanded, a hint of confusion hidden beneath his hard tone. Brahms felt his adrenaline mounting as he reached for the sabre at his hip. In a flash, the blade found its way from its polished sheath and into the throat of the translator. The gurgling boy collapsed as a spray of crimson dyed the white fabric of the tent a sinister maroon. Dorje's eyes widened in shock. Brahms's Tibetan was limited, but he understood enough to make out the inevitable cry of surprise. Brahms smiled at Dorje as he slashed his own forearm open, tearing into his coat and flesh, and then sheathed his blade. Covered in blood and clenching his self-inflicted wound, he ran out of the tent with his walking staff in his hand, screaming, The Tibetan savage slaughtered one of our own and just tried to assassinate me! This time it took all of his remaining effort to hide a smirk. Has your commander not suffered enough deception at the hands of our enemies? He cried out, gesticulating madly at his eye patch. For your king, your country and for glory, kill them! Kill them all! You will recognise the crossing when you see his mark in the sky, but before he sweeps clean the earth, he will bestow gifts beyond our wildest dreams. Sing out in joy, fratresque sorores me, the day of judgment will be bright and beautiful indeed. Oaken panels of lustrous scarlet, swinging braziers steaming with sweet incense, Gilded altars illuminated by dying candles flickering with rich emerald flames. As he strode deeper and deeper within the monastery's inky darkness, Fenton Brahms picked out different shapes in the gloom with his remaining eye, muttering softly to himself as he planted each step on the crumbling stone floor with well-practised conviction. The cavernous abyss of the entrance hall resembled the inside of a hive, the walls grew more intricately curved the higher up they ran. The monastery was cut into the mountains with no visible exterior, but Brahms guessed that its hollowed shape resembled that of the gleaming white stupas he had seen in the Piedmont villages. Save for the shimmering green lights of the altars, he was alone in the darkness. It had been for the best that Willem and the other men stayed behind, barring the entrance and tending to their Tibetan captives. Most of Dorje's men had been dispatched, but some of his lieutenants spared the wounded. He would reprimand them later. Brahms felt an overwhelming sense of purpose as he considered that this place, which Dorje and his men had guarded with their lives, was now completely at his mercy. There must be some higher power keeping you for something. Tybalt's voice rang again. But what had Dorje been so intent on protecting? There was nothing to be found except dust and ashes. Then he saw it, flickering iridescently at the end of the hall, a small floating fire, glowing of its own accord, with no visible source. Brahm suddenly felt the presence of the burning man. He wasn't sure how he knew, but he knew. 
the burning man was reaching out to him. Before his next step, Brahms fell to his knees, screaming in agony. A vision of blazing fire assaulted all his senses. He could see it clearly, as if through two eyes. London awash in burning embers, her streets scorched by sparks hotter than molten steel, ash raining from coal-black smog in an unceasing tempest of death, flashing spheres of light from which the most grotesque and unimaginable horrors emerged, and soaring above them all, the sweltering imprint of a man, branded in the searing oculus of the heavens. Robed by magma and crowned in flame, he drifted inexorably forward like a constellation from hell, fiery destruction purging all in his wake. And everywhere below, the world burned with holy ardour, the screams of the cleansed ringing into the night. Brahms gasped in pain as the whirling images forced themselves out of his mind's eye almost as quickly as they had arrived. The scabs on his hands were bleeding again and his whole body felt weak. Brahms scrambled in the gloom for his walking stick. Even after all these years, it served as a reminder to him of how far he had come. Fingers scuttling across the stone floor and slick with blood, he found it at last and hauled himself to his feet, wincing in pain as a gnarled wood rubbed against his raw skin. His head was swimming. Everything in the Contiones had been right. He had seen it, felt it, exactly as Wade had written it. Was it the same vision? The shimmering light glowed ominously before him, and he felt a strange energy emanating from it. The crossing. The burning man was coming and Brahms had been chosen, spared from death in the desert so that he could become a prophet of his word. The world had to know that the end of humanity was incontrovertible. Suddenly, the floating light enveloped him like a blanket, and he had a vision of the burning man once again. This time, though, Brahms was rejuvenated by the flame's touch. His strength slowly came back to him, and a new warmth coursed through his veins. The light before him faded to nothingness, but it felt as though the radiance remained within. Fenton knew, instinctively, that he had been touched by the burning man, and was blessed with physical and mystical strength. He has bestowed upon me a gift. Sprinting while high on adrenaline, Brahms emerged into the cold mountain air, smiling as he ignored the frost against his skin. Brahms! Willem ran up to meet him, medical bag in hand. Are you mad? What did you see? I need to return to London, Willem. Ensure that the Tibetans are dealt with and don't go inside. It's not for the unbelievers. The doctor looked nonplussed. I don't understand. What the hell is in there? Is it dangerous? He looked around at the other soldiers. Are our men's lives in jeopardy? Answer me, Brahms. You can't just leave the regiment now. Hours ago you were almost assassinated and now you storm out of the depths of the mountain looking like you've seen a ghost. This isn't normal. Nothing ever was, doctor, said Brahms grabbing one of the army horses by the reins and hoisting himself onto its back with surprising dexterity. He sheathed his sword and fastened his staff to the saddlebags. Brahms's mind was racing. What could he say? That all of London was awaiting the smouldering grasp of the burning man? That the world would end? He had seen it. Willem was uninitiated. They only fear what they cannot understand. 
They shall never accept the truth. Only the devout and pure of heart can. Wade had written. The doctor, a man of science, of logic or reason, would never accept his truth. Better to leave now, to find Wade and other members of the faithful to explain what he saw, rather than try to convince the unworthy. In a flash, Brahms mouthed a silent prayer under his breath and spurned his horse into motion, disappearing down the trail leading to the camp below, his horse spraying muddy snow at a flabbergasted villain. They told me that what I had seen was impossible. Silencing me with their judgment, they said that he would never come, and that the earth would never burn. But in their arrogance, they were deceived, for he was already inside all of us. Brahms! Brahms! Willem dropped his bag and stamped his foot in frustration, but the commander was gone. At that moment, a soldier ran forward, his panting breath steaming in the freezing night air. Sir, one of Georges' men... He needs to speak with someone about Commander Brahms. Damn it. Willem looked as though he wanted to scream. I'll speak with him. Lead the way. The doctor picked up his bag, shivered, and followed the soldier back to the command tent. One of the Tibetan captains sat by Brahms's desk, hands and feet bound, his face swollen from a severe beating. Did you do this? Willem asked, looking angrily at the soldier. But he had already departed, the tent flap billowing behind him. He knelt down on one knee to examine the bruises with pity and disgust. I'm sorry they did this to you, I really am. Willem reached into his bag for an alcohol solution and began to dab at the wounds. This is going to sting, but it will help. Can you understand me? The Tibetan nodded. Yes, I speak your language. You have a name asked Willem with a sigh of relief. Satya, the man said gruffly. I saw your commander go inside. He nodded in the direction of the monastery. It is a matter of life and death. You're too late, I'm afraid. He is gone. Willem steadied himself with a deep breath. Dorje tried to kill him. I doubt he would have spoken with you anyway. Dorje surrendered. He was a man of honour who would never draw blood at a parley, let alone kill your translator. The Tibetan cast a glance at the crimson stains on the tent lining. That boy was barely a man. I know that your commander murdered him. That is not what I understand to have happened. Commander Brahms is a good man. Willem stopped dabbing at Satya's face. He had quite an imagination. Tell that to Dodge's three grandchildren if they're still alive after you're through with them. You'd better hope they aren't. They will want vengeance. Willem sighed. Enough. What do you want? Your commander is in danger. Satya stared up at him imploringly. Find him and warn him. There's not much time. Willem stared back at Satya blankly. I don't understand, he began, but the Tibetan cut him off. Weeks ago, my people saw a strange light in the sky. We followed it to this place, this monastery. By the time we arrived, the light was fading from view. But we saw what it had done. 
the monks who lived in this place. They had gone mad. They were raving and they were changed. Different. They had strange growths on their bodies and had lost the capacity for speech. They attacked us and killed a dozen before we were able to stop them. Satya shook his head, as if trying to clear his memory of the events. With the monks dead, a few of us went inside the monastery, and they too came out changed. Only one was sane enough to tell us about what was inside. That is the reason we guard this place. It is the reason we dealt with the Tsar. We'd heard about what he could do, and we thought he might know what had affected the monks. Somewhere to stop it. Now we guard it so no others may enter it, so all are safe from its touch. We guard it until the Tsar returns to fix the evil that lurks inside. And what exactly lies inside? Willem raised his eyebrows sceptically. Madness itself. All the suffering and pain of samsara, of infinite lives and reincarnations brought together as one against the laws of nature. This energy, it drives us mad, playing with our minds, our bodies, our chakras, making us think that the false is true and the true false, inverting everything we think we understand about our world. It makes the stuff of myth come to life. What? The doctor scoffed. Satya looked exasperated. He chose his next words carefully. I believe your people call it a breach, although I'm not sure anyone looking at this one could identify it for what it really is. No one has been inside for weeks, except for one of the Tsar's people. Willem's stomach shrunk. No, there could only be one breach, Malifaux. How long had this portal existed? Was it still there? Satya nodded at the horrified expression on Willem's face. Now you understand. You know what it can do. I don't know what your leader thought he saw. But it was not for the minds of men. He may be about to do something he is going to regret. Why are you telling me this? His madness is a boon to you. William responded suspiciously. His hand slid almost instinctively towards his holster. Because even my enemy does not deserve to be destroyed by that which is from another world. We have kept people from it, but your commander went inside, said Satcher with conviction. Dorje's gone, but he would not have wanted this. I need to see this for myself. If I untie you, will you attack me? Willem asked pistol fully drawn and levelled. You have to lead me to it. Satya shook his head. You go at your own peril. I will not join you. You have no choice. I need a guide, and so you must take me. Satya despaired as Willem began to untie his restraints. Willem continued to mull over what the man had told him. Could there really be a breach? Here, he had to verify Satch's words and get to Brahms before the commander did something spectacularly stupid. As Satya rose, the lamps flickered out, and an unnatural chill engulfed the command tent as the entire space was bathed in near darkness, barely illuminated by an unnatural hue of pale green. At first, Willem could hear nothing except the howling of the wind, 
but it was soon accompanied by the padded, muffled crunch of boots on snow, the shriek of shattering ice, and horrible, blood-curdling moans, like the sigh of a man's final death-rattle protracted in an infinite loop of despair. Willem's blood froze. He spun around and saw Satya staring at him in the spectral light, his bruised face more haunting than ever. The Tsar's men have come to rescue us after all. Gunfire, shouting, and the screams of Willem's men rang in his ears as he saw the shadows of some malignant foe dancing on the canvas of the tent. He was coming closer. His hand was shaking as he levelled his pistol at Satya. Call them off or you die! There was desperation in Willem's voice as the sounds of battle grew louder. They will not listen to me, Satya said grimly. Their deal was with Dorje. I'm sorry. I didn't plan on it ending this way. I thought the Tsar wouldn't come for us. I have to get Brahms. Willem had barely registered this thought when the inhuman creature came through the wall of the tent. In moments, the entire Empire force was cut down by agents of the Tsar. Blessed is the one who trusts in his flames, whose confidence is in him. We do not fear when the heat comes, but emerge stronger and more beautiful from the embers. He arrived just after the crossing had begun. The London Brahms returned to was barely recognisable as the one he had left behind. From the canopy of the dirigible, he marvelled at the same ruined city he had seen in every dream during his return from the east. It now lay below him in reality, perfectly, beautifully alight in the glow from the floating figure overhead. As Acontiones predicted, the Burning Man had indeed come, and Brahm stared out at what he thought was a god. Burned into the heavens in the distance, robed by magma and crowned in flame, it drifted inexorably forward like a constellation from hell, fiery destruction purging all in his wake in waves of suffocating ash. The feeling of righteous purpose that Brahms felt in Tibet just weeks before boiled inside him. Brahms was meant to be back here by his side, standing by him as the crossing came to pass. At last, you came for your faithful, and you brought me here by your side to lead them. Brahms muttered under his breath as he stared at the burning man in wonder through the lens of a telescope. What was that? The pilot had heard him whispering. He looked at Brahms nervously. Brahms cringed. My apologies, officer. I was just thinking out loud. He reached into his pocket and stroked the spine of the contiones as he rearranged his expression. What's happening below? Where will you set me down? Downing Street, Commander, the pilot replied. Our command set up a defensive perimeter there, but the airship won't fit inside the fortifications. A team will intercept you once we land. They must really want you badly. I don't know why you're back, Brahms, but your timing is impeccable. If half the crazy shit I've heard about your time in Afghanistan is true, you just might be able to help us turn this around. The pilot peered through his wind goggles at Brahms's eye patch and then shifted to the scars on his hands. 
Bad luck that my unexpected return home coincided with this. He looked out at the city aflame. Paradise? Utopia? Disaster. What's happening down there? Why wasn't I briefed the moment they made contact? Our command said you had to see it for yourself, the pilot said. That thing, we still don't know what the hell it is. It doesn't seem to be alive. It just burns. Not alive? No. He was a god. Brahms felt the rage suddenly flare inside him. Before he knew it, his hand was on the hilt of his sabre, and his grip on his trusty staff tightened. Show him some respect! The other man stared back quizzically, clearly uncomfortable. Sir, who are you talking about? It's nothing, Brahms said hastily, clarity returning to him. Continue. I want to know everything. Pointing at the blazing effigy, the pilot responded, That thing, it just appeared. We knew something wasn't right. It burned in the sky for days. And then it burst out, and everything went to hell. There was so much water, entire districts have flooded and whole families were displaced. Water supplies were ruined with salt water. We don't understand it. It's some kind of weather phenomenon, like a natural disaster or a magical storm. It's not the weather, Brahms murmured. It's deliverance. It was almost time. The pilot didn't seem to hear him. That fire thing isn't the worst of it. You never mentioned what we were actually fighting down there, said Brahms, hiding his smile. A holy tide will sweep away the unbelievers. Slow at first, like the falling of rain, it will build and build into a raging storm that shall spare none in its path, Wade had promised. It was all going exactly as he had said. Were there other agents prepared to help expedite the crossing? The Gribblers! The pilot pressed their descent further. Brahms blinked in surprise. What on earth are Gribblers? Poor choice of words. The pilot answered with the faintest hint of a dark chuckle. They're not from Earth. They're amphibious monsters, sort of like fishmen, I guess. Struggling as though he could not even believe it himself, the pilot gesticulated at the sky. They came through portals that opened up all over. Not long after that thing appeared, they came with it, although we can't determine whether or not they're related. All we know is that they're hungry, and they fed on almost every family in London. Downing Street is one of our best holdouts. Were these his children, too? What part did they have to play in the crossing? The Contiones had said nothing about such creatures, and he had not seen them in his dreams. The water also seemed out of place compared to his visions. There was time to get a closer look. The army had been kind to take him personally to the centre of this vast heart of darkness, but he hadn't returned to serve as their loyal lapdog, not while the Burning Man was watching. Thank you for the briefing, officer. You've been most helpful, Brahms said, but I'm afraid I'm not going to Downing Street. Before the pilot could respond, Brahms slit his throat. For you, my light, he said, laughing manically and watching the man's blood flow over the dashboard. He pulled his wicker fix out from his shirt and raised it up to the burning man above as though he was making a toast. Tonight, you and I become one.
Your time has come. It is a new dawn for all, one bright and beautiful. For he will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more. There will be no mourning or crying or pain. All of your former shackles will have crumbled to dust. In the haze, Brahms could make out the debris, molten slag and broken glass strewn everywhere from where countless windows had popped from the heat. The smoking hulk of the airship smouldered behind him, its balloon in tatters and its carriage wrecked, torn apart like the carcass of a sacrificed beast. The landing hadn't been pretty, but it was effective. He had avoided entanglement with high command for the time being. The city was deathly silent. Rain continued to fall, muffling the sounds of screams and gunfire in the distance. Abandoned carts and bent lampposts were barely distinguishable from one another in the mist, but with the Burning Man as his guide, Brahms had no fear of the darkness. It cast rays of orange and crimson, giving even the wet flagstones a radiant hue. He had to find other members of the faithful. Together, they would take part in the crossing. Looking up at the sky, Brahms withdrew another wicker fix from his pocket, lit a match and burned it. Guide me to them. As he held the burning effigy before him, he heard a sound unlike anything that had ever crossed his ears. It was a noise in between a slither and a scuttle, the sound of something wet and organic moving on hard concrete. Moments later, dozens of impish creatures bolted out of the darkness and surrounded him, their sharpened teeth wet with slippery ropes of saliva glistening in the light of his torch. Gribblers. They moved together as a swarm, gnashing their fangs and flailing their claws. Servants of the Burning Man, Brahms called out. I am one of the faithful. I mean you no harm. The beasts stared at him blankly. Without warning, they charged forward in unison, jaws snapping and talons waving. Brahms battered away the blows with sickening dread in his stomach. Had his lord forsaken him? Stop! Stop! We are one! But the creatures kept coming, and Brahms had no choice. He drew his blade and sliced through his attackers, drenching himself in black ichor as every stroke sent limbs flying. One of the gribblers propelled itself through the air, leaping from its squat hind legs with speed and energy that surprised Brahms. He still managed to catch it mid-jump, impaling it from beneath with the tip of his blade as he deflected strikes from another one clawing at his shins. A congealed mess of gore clogged the rim of his boots, and each step backwards was accompanied by a sickening squelch, drowned by an even louder chorus of crackling teeth. There were too many. The floundering horrors pushed him further and further down the street. Brahms was already bleeding from several scratches where wicked strikes grazed him, but he was too high on adrenaline to feel the pain. It doesn't end, not like this. You chose me, he pleaded at the burning man blazing above. It seemed to answer his call. The tapping of cobbled shoes on concrete, the light of torches, shouting, before Brahms could properly register what was happening, a stream of bodies emerged from the adjoining alley, pushing and shoving past each other in their zeal. He is no infidel! Protect the faithful! 
Brahms heard the shouts and was almost knocked off his feet as a swarm of men and women clad in filthy rags. And could it be a mixture of straight jackets and black and white inmate uniforms? Threw themselves into the tide of the gribblers with a maddening howl. Bloodied fists, stones, bricks, shards of glass and even scalpels met wet, slippery skin and hardened scales in feral combat. Brahms watched in amazement as the newcomers smashed into their foes with little regard for their own safety. Their eyes danced with madness, and their fists and feet slashed with uncanny speed. There was no elegance or grace to their attacks. These people did not know how to fight. Some were elderly, others scrawny and without muscle, but all were compelled by a primal thirst for violence. He watched almost in horror, as a thin young woman smashed a massive pickaxe almost twice her size tip-first into one of the gribblers, even as another lacerated her from behind. One of her compatriots tore it off her, threw it to the ground, and threw himself on top of the beast with all his body weight. He crushed it instantly, only to be trampled by the woman whom he had just saved, as she raised her weapon for another blow. Brahms re-entered the fray with renewed vigour, striking left and right at the creatures, until he had battled his way into the heart of the throng. Their numbers were thinning. The ambush was thwarted. Sensing that they were now outnumbered, the creatures retreated into the shadows with a malevolent hiss. Brahms hacked at the slowest of them with two brutal cross-strokes, quartering his victim in ruthless abandon. It was only then that he looked at his saviours properly, and his dread turned to joy. He had not been abandoned. These people, whoever they might have once been, were now men and women of the Church of the Burning Man. A few had wicker fixes tied around their still heaving chests, and others had even cut the symbol into their foreheads, cheeks and arms. Many of these scars were fresh, but others looked like they had been made through acts of faith committed long ago. Brahms gazed up at the Burning Man once again and sunk to his knees in prayer. "'You delivered me,' he said, his voice thankful. "'So shall I deliver you.' The zealots surrounded Brahms, shouting about the glory of the Burning Man. As their mad ramblings reached a fever pitch, the Burning Man pulsed anew, dousing the entire city in a flash of red-orange light. His saviours collapsed, clutching at their temples, clawing at their eyes and gasping for air. Some sank to their knees with a blood-curdling wail. Others rolled on the concrete in agony, grinding themselves against the rubble. Brahms rose tentatively, expecting to feel pain at any second. But it never came. He alone stood tall as the others collapsed and writhed at his feet. Their skin was turning a rich arcane turquoise, as spidery veins snaked across their limbs. They were warping. Brahms marvelled as his god above continued to pulse, and his trusty wooden staff began to glow with radiant hues of blue and purple. There was something coming towards him, discernible even in the flickering shadows. A single light of electric blue burst forth from the darkness, and Brahms fell to his knees as his palms began to bleed once again. To all of the unbelievers, I say, what is truth but a lie that we have made our own? 
Fenton Brahms knelt atop the crumbling ruins he once called home, lit by the flickering embers and encircled by a wall of pallid flesh that was no longer fully human. Around him, the warped, writhed and convulsed in the agonising final moments of their change, hideously twisted into shapes of madness contorted almost beyond human recognition. Sharp claws, barbed tails and gleaming talons shimmered with unnatural power. Beneath their mutated skin, a glow of pale aqua raged with flaming intensity, as if ready to burst forth from its shackles in the blink of an eye. A floating figure towered over them all. Rise, lantern! Brahms obeyed, his hands clasped in supplication as he basked in the figure's gaze. In the distance, the sound of distant gunfire and the screams of the damned made for a purifying crescendo of death and light that would sweep clean all that came before it. It was so beautiful. With the power of the burning man swirling at his fingertips, Brahms felt more purpose than he had experienced in all his service with the king's empire. The adoration of the damned and the presence of this crimson angel was indisputable proof that he had been chosen to forge a path for his new world, free from the persecution of unbelievers. Wiping the blood from his hands, he looked out at the twisted legion before him, each warrior more corrupted than the last, and his mouth split into a wide smile. What would you have me do? Brahms croaked. The robed figure hovered silently in place, but a voice emerged from its depths nevertheless. Do as you were born to do. Lead the purge, Lantern. This world must be made good, bright and beautiful. London was only the beginning. Brahms looked affectionately at the wall of those who had once been men and women, but now, blessed by the touch of the burning man, were more divine and terrible than anything that had ever come before. He felt their energy pulse with his own heartbeat. He sensed their need to serve and their unquestioning loyalty to the blazing god in the sky. In the remnants of his shattered mind, he heard Tybalt's words for a final time. There must be some higher power keeping you for something. Look at these believers changed in the crossing. It couldn't be a lie. In the wastes of a thirsty desert, he had been saved from death itself. In the darkest depths of the frozen mountains, he was given a vision of the future. And here, in the burning ruins of London, he had been saved by the divine intervention of the faithful. He was chosen. Now was the time to share that vision and its unwavering truth with the rest of the world, helping to expedite the crossing as was his will. This could be no accident, no coincidence, if one of his angels appeared before him to demand as much. These creatures, the warped, he would find a way to make more of them, and with them pursue the truth of the crossing to the end as his prophet, with every man, woman, child and creature he could enthrall. There would be others in the city who were already faithful, those who had not yet ascended. He would find them too and lead them all together. As for the gibbering hordes, the true name of those he had thought of as gribblers, he knew not from whence they came, but they were not of his flock. 
They were but one more group of inferiors to be systematically eliminated for a brighter and more beautiful world. The Great Purge would start at Downing Street, with the Prime Minister herself. Invigorated by his own burning conviction, Fenton Brahms marched his warped forth into the heart of the ruined city, his staff alight with arcane magic like a perverse beacon in the night. When Brahms and his circus of madness were out of sight, Adiodatus chuckled, summoned a portal of glowing purple, and vanished into another place. This world would be consumed by the Burning Man soon enough. That's it for another episode of the Earthside Echo. Join us next time for more dispatches from Earthside.